Hi everybody, my name is Pete Finn and I'm a senior lecturer at Kingston University and this is the COVID-19 and Democracy podcast. And on the podcast this week, we are returning to an issue which we touched on prior in a couple of episodes, which um, broadly can be understood as kind of the area of corruption. And we have previously touched on this with Sam Power, who is at the University of Suffolk. Uh, the Centre for the Study of Corruption. And with Sam, we looked at um, kind of Nolan reform standards and where we are with that and how they, those issues have played out during the pandemic. We've also looked at similar territory a few months ago now when we spoke with Sophie Hill of Harvard, uh, broadly discussing the idea of chumocracy and how the UK state has dealt with kind of handing out various contracts during the pandemic and how that can be understood in longer term trends. And we're in a similar vein today, we are talking to Sam's um, colleague from the Centre for the Study of Corruption at the University of Sussex, Elizabeth David Barrett. And Elizabeth is a regular in the media. Um, you will know her um, if you follow such stories from things like Newsnight. Um, she's featured regularly in the press. So papers like The Guardian, The FT, The Eye. Um, she has written reports for Transparency International on things like the UK Bribery Act and the revolving doors in, uh, between UK government and the private sector, and as well as giving evidence to parliamentary subcommittees. Um, so, Elizabeth, thank you very much for joining us today. It's um, brilliant to have you on the podcast. Thanks very much, Pete. It's great to be here. Oh, uh, brilliant. Uh, so, before we turn to events of the pandemic and how that has evolved in the last year and a half, um, can you just give any readers who kind of, obviously most, not readers, pardon me, listeners, pardon me, uh, will have heard the word corruption, have a broad understanding of what it means, but how, when we're going to be talking about corruption today, how would you define corruption? Yeah, that's a great place to start. So at the centre, we're defining corruption as the abuse of entrusted power for private gain. So just to pull that apart a bit. Um, so we're looking at people who are in roles where they've got power and they've been trusted by someone to uh, to perform certain functions and to exercise that power in a certain way. So that clearly applies to people who are in public office roles and also politicians. But it could also apply to uh, private sector roles. So shareholders, for example, entrust um, the CEO of a company to act in a certain way. So that's the kind of entrusted power bit. And then the idea is that there is some private gain or motivation um, that someone's going to receive private gain. Um, so it could be a bribe or some kind of gift, or it could be a job with a company. But the idea is that the promise of that private gain motivates the power holder to abuse their power. So whereas they should be exercising their function in a certain way, they're kind of pushed off course by the promise of this private gain. And so they end up abusing that entrusted power. OK, brilliant. Thank you very much. And um, very concise indeed. <laughs> um, so. Historically, and I guess I should say for listeners, we're, we're mainly going to be talking about the UK context on the podcast, um, although obviously we might touch on issues beyond the UK and certainly it would be fair to say that corruption is not an issue that is solely an issue or problem in the UK. So although we're going to focus mainly on the UK, in no way are we denying that it happens elsewhere or, or the importance of it. Um, 
it's just that our focus is going to be the UK. So historically, how big a problem has it been in, in a UK context? Well, I think in some ways, you know, corruption is something that is is always there all across the world. Um, and so certainly something that did exist historically. And when you think about things like in the UK, people might be familiar with the term rotten boroughs. So this idea that there was a kind of local jurisdiction, um, maybe it only had a few voters who were able to um, you know, vote for things in that jurisdiction, but would be making decisions for the whole um, community. So, you know, it's this sense of kind of cronyism <clears throat> and favoritism and basically using the fact that you've got public power to give out spoils to your cronies and to your friends is certainly something that is there in Britain historically um, a few hundred years ago. And, and people really talk about one of the big um, uh, sort of turning points there of in terms of overcoming corruption has been through the kind of formalization of the civil service and the reform act. Um, so early 19th century. And, and what you get there is that a lot of processes start to become much more formal and institutionalized. Um, so historians who work on this, you know, they tell really interesting stories about, for example, if you think about factory inspections in the 19th century. Um, so a common thing would be that children were not, at a certain point, children were not supposed to be working in factories. But to enforce that, you need someone to go and check who's working in the factory and how old you know, the employees are and that kind of thing. Something that was actually quite difficult without paperwork because kids didn't necessarily have birth certificates, for example. So the actual check was often very discretionary. They'd look in the mouths of the kids to look at their teeth and try and gauge how old they were then. So there's already a lot of discretion built in, which creates potential for corruption. But the other thing about that process is that the factory inspectors were not given any expenses. So they were traveling around the country to visit these factories, but they didn't have any official expenses to um, pay for their travel or their accommodation. <clears throat> so typically what would happen is the factory in um, owners would say, oh, well, come and stay with us. And you know, they would put them up, give them a big um, lavish meal, probably plenty of alcohol with it. And then the next morning, um, having received all of this gratitude and, and hospitality, they went off to do the factory inspection. So that's you know clearly something you can see, there could be a, a conflict of interest there. And so what happened in the 19th century was there was gradually a recognition of this, um, a lot of reforms put in place to build in these processes and to make sure that people who were working for the state had the resources um, to actually fulfill those roles. So yeah, that's the kind of historical um, you know, sense of how this has developed really. Okay, brilliant. Yeah, I mean, that the example of the, the factory inspectors and the staying in the, uh, the nice country uh, piles is like a yeah, clear, clear conflict of interest. Um, and so that's um, really interesting with relation to um, how, where corruption has occurred. In terms of historically, how have, what measures have evolved or have been put in place to help deal with um, corruption? So partly it's about having rules for how things should work in the first place. So setting out what the formal process should be. But then it's also about having checks and balances. So any kind of institution that's entrusted with power should have some other institutions which are able to oversee what it's doing um, and hold it to account. 
And similarly, individuals within organizations typically need to have some kind of oversight or other people who are, you know, checking on what they're doing. So again, that their own individual conduct can be held to account. Um, and so talking about that kind of institutional framework, you know, the classic kind of separation of powers that you see in the UK, in the US rather. Um, so the executive branch and the legislative branch and the judiciary all being separate and able to control each other in some aspects. You don't quite have that in the UK. It's a slightly different system because the, um, the government is always drawn from the legislature, from the parliament. Um, so there's already a bit more overlap, but then that just means that it's even more important that parliament does have the power to scrutinize legislation, that the judiciary has the power of judicial review and can hold government decisions to account. But also what you increasingly see as states start to modernize is that you'll get things like audit offices who are going in and checking how decisions have been made in government. And although sometimes we think of audit as something financial, a lot of it is actually about checking that the process was followed and followed in the correct way. So things like audit institutions are really important. And then, of course, outside actual government, you've got what's often called the fourth estate. So media, but also civil society. And it's really important that they've got good access to information, that they're able to operate freely. They're not biased through being owned by people who are sympathetic to the government um, and that they're able to conduct investigations, publish their material freely. And, and this is also a really critical factor for holding government to account and preventing corruption. So it's really about creating that kind of institutional ecosystem. Okay, great. Um, and as someone who's totally addicted to media <laughs> and, uh, you know, investigative journalism is, is like, it's, I mean, it's just, I, it, you almost can't state, I think, how important it is. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, you know, big media organisations make mistakes, right? But I mean, that I often find it frustrating when people use, like, you know, people make mistakes, but use that as an argument against having them and, uh, you know, sort of the, the BBC is an obvious one that always gets uh, beaten yeah, over the absolutely. head. Um, and yeah. Currently, all the stuff in the press about whether it it should funding should rise in line with inflation, which personally I would see as a no-brainer because if it doesn't, then it would its ability to do its job would shrink. But um, yeah, and you know, one of the most exciting things I think in the last decade in the anti-corruption world has been how investigative journalism has really taken off. Actually, it's often quite a different model to what it used to be. So they're not selling papers, but they're often getting um, funding more like a civil society organisation, um, but doing some really deep, thorough investigations. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, and there's been, I mean, I quite like, like the space where you get kind of collaboration between civil society and journalists. Um, so yeah. I don't. I don't know if any listeners know of the rendition project, which um, I used to work on way back in yeah. my academic career. And um, there was some really, that, that was run by my my first PhD supervisor, Sam Raphael, he's now, he was at Kingston, he's now at Westminster, and Ruth Brakeley, who's at Sheffield, and they did, um, have done brilliant work mapping kind of um, CIA detainees, but they engaged with journalists like Ian Cobain, who was, was then at The Guardian, but is now at Middle East mm. Eye, and various different um, kind of civil society organisations. Um, okay, so, uh, and why, why does this matter? Um, I, I guess, I mean, it's, it's always obvious why it matters, but I mean, why should we, as citizens, 
um, as concerned citizens in democracy. Well, why, why should we care about corruption? Yeah, sure. I think that's a really important question, actually, because sometimes people get a bit disillusioned with um, corruption and they just sort of think, oh, well, it's inevitable and does it really matter? Um, but ultimately, I think it's really important that the people that we have entrusted to work on our behalf in the public interest are, are doing that and that they're not instead um, making decisions that are based on their own private interest. And, you know, sometimes you can see corrupt decisions lead to particular outcomes where you can clearly see that there are shoddy, poor quality services. So, I don't know, take a kind of procurement contract. Um, the person who wins the contract is um, winning it, not because they've got the best bid, but because they happen to know someone in the office that's distributing the contract or maybe they actually pay a bribe to get the contract in that situation then they they have no they might not have the capability to provide a good service or they're also just not interested in it because they expect that no one's really going to check up on them you know they got this through corrupt means and they can be fairly confident that no one's going to come along and say oh you didn't quite do this according to the letter of the the bid that you submitted. So what you often get is that companies that are winning contracts in that way, they're providing really inferior quality services. So that could be that they're not building a road or a bridge to the um, adequate quality. So maybe that road or bridge, you know, in the worst case scenario, a bridge collapses. We saw um, you know, really bad example um, of that earlier this year in Mexico. Um, we you know, sometimes there are roads that just need repairing very quickly um, when they shouldn't, you know, they should last for a long time. So you end up wasting public money. So there's, you know, there's potential safety consequences. There's just waste of public money. But what is also more intangible and difficult often to evidence is whether just whole policy agendas are being distorted by corrupt and improper influences. So, you know, our government's deciding to you stick with nuclear power because the nuclear lobby is really powerful um, when otherwise they might go for renewables or, or you know, or vice versa. Um, to be frank, it, you know, it could go either way. But but those kinds of things are really much more difficult to unpick. But those are the sort of really big decisions that might actually push a country in a whole direction that is not really in the public interest um, because there's underlying corruption and improper influence. Okay. Um, very, very well, well laid out. Um, and so turning to the pandemic, how has corruption been an issue over the last, I mean, we're a year and a half in now, so certainly mm. there's still, like, thing, things are coming in into clarity in, in some ways, especially from the early stages, and um, will continue to um, over the, the coming years. But how, uh, where we are at this point, how, how much of an issue has it been? Yeah, so there are a few different areas where it's been an issue. Um, the most obvious one and the one that's got most coverage is in public procurement. So clearly, you know, when a pandemic happens, it's an emergency situation. Governments need to buy a lot of stuff that they didn't expect to have to buy and they need to buy it fairly quickly. So this was really clear with personal protective equipment, PPE, masks and, and that kind of thing for healthcare workers. Um, and public procurement is usually built on a whole system that it should be open and competitive. You basically say, we need to buy this and you invite companies to bid. You give them plenty of time to put together their, 
their bid and then you select the one that's the best value for money. Now, in a, an emergency situation, there's not enough time to go through the whole process. Um, and, and so what you saw is that a lot of procurement and a huge amount of public money was spent on things like PPE without going through those normal competitive processes. Now, some of that I think is understandable, um, but some of it looks almost like it was really not necessary to do it in those emergency conditions. And, and therefore you have to ask questions about, you know, why was that method chosen? And also, even within the emergency conditions, it's possible to do some checks and due diligence, um, and, and that doesn't seem to have been done in many cases. So it seems that instead, the UK government actually created this VIP lane um, in procurement where they were channeling in people who they had contacts with, and um, they seemed to get beneficial um, access and were more likely to get, to get contracts than other people. So procurement is a, a big issue where there's been a, a lot of um, potential corruption. You know, it's difficult often to find exact evidence of corruption, but there's certainly a number of um, risk factors. And in fact, uh, TI, Transparency International, did a, a good report earlier this year where they looked at these red flags or risks of corruption, and they found that about 20% of COVID contracts in the period of February to November 2020 had at least one of those red flags um, for corruption. Uh, so procurement's one area. Another thing is the COVID relief. Um, so particularly loans um, that small businesses were able to access um, during the COVID. We don't know that this is necessarily corruption as opposed to fraud, but there definitely seems to have been huge fraud in terms of people accessing those loans when they didn't really meet the criteria, sometimes, you know, setting up um, companies specifically for the purpose. And, and that's large amounts of money and, um, you know, really wasted money. And again, something where you think, you know, this could have been um, done better. And then you've seen some small cases around corruption around vaccines. So obviously that was a, a, a good that was very much in demand. Lots of people wanted to get hold of vaccines, especially at the beginning. And sometimes there were some stories around um, vaccines being allocated according to um, favoritism rather than according to the right criteria set by the NHS. And also things around you know, leftover vaccines and how they were allocated. And does that potentially create an incentive to make sure you've got some leftovers um, if you can then um, use those in certain ways that might benefit or favour your cronies. So I think those are a few areas where we've seen um, corruption most, most clearly in the pandemic. Okay, so what we can surmise from that is that you're going to be very busy, I think, <laughs> in the coming years. There seems to be lots, uh, lots going on and lots of, um, yeah, so you're right, most of the coverage has been on, I suppose, because it, I mean, it's a good story, right, um, that the VIP lane, they're kind of, mm -hmm. they're using WhatsApp to, um, to, to it kind of circumvent potentially uh, official channels and things like that um but yeah the, the stuff about the vaccines that is really um i mean that seems like something that could that certainly some phds in that <laughs> absolutely i'm sure uh, there's going to be a lot of research coming out on this yeah yeah indeed um and so there's some areas and how how has it come to light like how do we know what we know about it 
Yeah, great question. Um, so it's often investigations by journalists and by civil society groups, um, often using freedom of information requests, although, you know, there've also been, in fact, investigations about how the government blocks some freedom of information requests. So they're not perfect, um, but they are a tool that journalists have often used. Um, so, you know, we've had some really great investigative journalism digging into the details of particular contracts. Um, it's, you know, it's often been difficult work, partly because of a lack of transparency. So uh, the government has a commitment to publish procurement contracts within 30 days, and they haven't been meeting this um, requirement. So um, they've been, you know, worse with, pa with pandemic related contracts, but also in fact worse at publishing regular contracts um, during this period. So those kinds of things inhibit transparency. Um, but you know, all the same, there's been some, some really thorough work done by journalists, also by civil society organisations, Transparency International UK has definitely done some great work on this, um, and some other organisations too. There have been some court cases um, brought against the government over some of these procurement um, actions by the Good Law Project. Um, so it's been actually a really, I think, a pretty healthy amount of civil society activism um, and although, you know, I have quite a lot of concerns about how many of those institutions in the UK that are supposed to check corruption, a lot of them have been quite sort of encroached upon in recent years. Um, but there has been, a, I think, a pretty strong and healthy response from the media and civil society. So that's really good to see. Yeah, indeed. Um, and so if anyone's um, listening and they've never used FOI or never looked into it, like it's a really great tool I mean <laughs> really, yeah. really fantastic I used it a little bit in my in my PhD and um, there's both in the UK and the US like I mean you can use it in various different ways the American Civil Liberties Union in the US use it brilliantly to um, get out some got some documents around um, I guess this goes back to what I was saying about the rendition project around um, CIA and army uh, kind of military detention and I mean it's it's, it's called the T torture database if anyone ever wants to um wants to know more about it send me an email or <laughs> I know more about that um because most of my mm -hmm. people space in it but it was really some great work um, um so you've touched on the next question already so you might not have kind of any any more specific examples but you might you may or may not want to expand on some some of those so are there kind of specific examples of corruption or where if we're not we might not yet know whether we can label it corruption but where they're like within that potential area that we can point to yeah so perhaps i could say a bit more about this um you know how we would think about trying to understand whether there's been corruption in the procurement so it is really difficult to tell um because essentially you'd have to get inside the heads of people and think about why they made those decisions uh, so our usual approach to looking at corruption risks in procurement as academics and something that I've done a lot of in work with uh, Mihai Fazakash, who's at the Central European University, is we take the procurement process and we look for these red flags. So one thing about procurement is that all around the world, it's fairly similar, um, at least in theory. So you, know, you, you decide what you need to buy, you announce this call for tender, you give a certain amount of time when people can submit bids, you have some criteria by which you choose bids and people who are on the panel who are selecting them, 
um, and then you know you you publish the contract and sign the contract and then lots of these bits of the process that are pretty standardized really um, and so the benefit of that for research is that you can look for small deviations and and small areas where there might be um, uh, a, a difference from what would be good practice, a deviation from good practice. So, for example, if a tender is only published for three days rather than 48 days, then that doesn't give many companies time to put together a bid. So typically that's the process we would use. So we would identify these red flags, then we'd look at huge data sets um, and we'd say you might come up with a result like, well, this particular local council seems to really often let contracts um, under conditions where there's only been a few days to put in your bid. Um, so that's something that is worthy of investigation. Is there any reason for that? And you know, there could be a good reason for it. Maybe there is some true emergency in that area. Maybe they've had flooding or something. But equally, it might be something to investigate and it might reveal corruption. So that's our, our kind of approach. Now, the tricky thing about a pandemic is that some of those um, normal things that you would expect to happen in, in public procurement processes are not going to happen in a normal way because it is an emergency. So, for example, that short advertisement period, it's, it's harder to, to look at that because there could be a good reason for that. Um, even things like pricing. Yeah. So in that period, the price of PPE rocketed because so many people wanted to buy it all around the world. And so that means you can't really look at prices and compare them to market prices, whereas normally you might be able to say this really looks like it's overpriced. Um, so it does make some of those things more difficult. At the same time, there were examples of countries that managed to still keep comp uh, procurement competitive and also examples of countries that were really, really transparent about what they were doing. So in Ukraine, a lot of the public procurement is published in real time. So you see a pretty much immediately who's getting the contracts. You can go in and investigate that. Yeah, that's Ukraine. That's a country that is not a, a wealthy country, um, but it's able to put in place that kind of good system. So I think, you know, that's one of the things that's disappointing about the UK. Um, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't seem to have tried its best to make sure it was all transparent and, and that it could be done and scrutinised by the public. It seems almost that the government has sort of welcomed the excuse to be able to say, well, we couldn't really do it transparency, it was all an emergency. And then that sort of puts in a different light when you see this VIP lane, you see that a lot of companies that won contracts were really quite close to the government, you know, sometimes even government ministers having a stake in companies that had won contracts. And often, you know, also that they'd won contracts under this VIP lane and these favourable conditions. So, you know, it's it's tricky to, to get at this. Um, as you say, there will need to be more investigations and inquiries. Um, but there are quite a lot of factors which look, you know, look like serious risks of corruption, essentially, when you look at the UK procurement. Oh, okay. That's really interesting. The, the point around transparency. So, one of the last year, we published a report at, on the project where we looked at seven different um, democracies. And uh, my colleague in my in my department at Suka Ichijo, she looked at. She's Japanese, so she wrote a chapter on Japan, but she also wrote a chapter on Taiwan, uh, which is like for for many 
ways has had like an incredible response um, to, to COVID. Um, and I'm not sure whether this applies to public contracts, um, but she said one of the things that struck her when she was doing it with writing and researching on top was just how transparent the government were. Um, right. I think she was mainly looking at how they used personal data um, around phones and kind of tracking and health data. Um, and but, that, but be, by being so open, they appeared to have got buy-in from large amounts of the population. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that, yeah, that's interesting, the, kind of the, the importance or, or lack of the importance of transparency or, or the lack of it. Yeah, I mean, there are a lot of issues here where we really needed to make decisions about whether we trusted the government. Yeah, they were making decisions about essentially about life and death situations. Um, and I think transparency really helps that if you can just see how decisions are being made, where the money's going. Um, it does really help to build trust. Absolutely. And I mean, I, you know, there's very. It, it's harder in, to, to use this in the kind of the subsequent ways, but I mean, in the initial wave, right? I mean, you know, most people would give at least some buy to say, like, I mean, you were dealing, we could sure. argue about whether lockdown yeah. should have happened earlier, all of that, but what once it became clear that something had to happen, there was, okay, like you say, the kind of idea that there was might be a, a shorter time on the tenders and stuff, that sort of makes sense, but yeah, at least in the initial period. Um, okay, and so, how sort of have the government and then I guess oversight bodies thinking about um, things I suppose like part APPGs maybe or parliamentary committees or other government oversight bodies, how have they um, kind of dealt with these issues um, during the pandemic? Yeah, so I think I would give a lot of credit to the National Audit Office. Um, so they came out with a report already in November 2020 about some of the COVID related procurement where they were already identifying um, some clear you know, problems in, in process. Um, so that's, you know, that's been really good. Um, what we've seen over this summer is a few more parliamentary inquiries asking questions about various aspects. Um, so, you know, Parliament beginning to exercise its oversight role. Parliament in the UK, of course, if you've got a, a majority, then you can get through a lot of legislation that you want. Um, without much question, but the parliamentary select committees are pretty good at holding to account and having detailed inquiries. So they will at least, you know, call witnesses, get get the evidence out there um, on the table. So, so they've been doing a good job. But we are, of course, waiting for this COVID inquiry, public inquiry that the government has promised, but we still don't know when that will be happening. Um, and, you know, it does have a, a pretty huge amount of material potentially to investigate and look at. So I'm not sure how, how useful that's going to be really. Um, and also how they're going to set the parameters for what it looks at, when it's going to report. Um, and whether when it reports, you know, if that's after the next election, then arguably the voters don't have a chance to you know, hold government to account for its findings and its results. So you know, one of the problems with these inquiries, they can be really good and really thorough, but there's a lot of political discretion about when they happen, how they happen, when they publish and that kind of thing. Um, so, yeah, that's my sort of main take on the, the government and oversight bodies side of things. OK, and yeah, I think you're right that the issue of the public inquiry and, and its remit and terms of reference and who's involved, how much resources it gets, that's going to 
become a huge issue, I imagine. I mean, you can imagine kind of the BBC, Channel 4 News, ITN, Sky News, running with it on a, on a daily basis um, mm-hmm. yeah. uh, for, for a, lot, a, a long period of time. Um, but, and we'll, but yeah, we'll see how, how, how long it is, how, whether they... I mean, the Grenfell Inquiry has done things like publish interim. Um, yeah, that's true. Report. Yeah. So you could maybe see those as even if the full <laughs> one's not out, um, that they could be interesting um, in terms of what what is and isn't said in those. Um, okay, and just before we wrap up, how um, what could be done differently, or how, what more could be done moving forward? I, mean, I guess in terms of part, you can take that in terms of policy. You can take that in terms of kind of civil response or. Yeah, so I think on the government side, more transparency about what it's doing, um, you know, just meeting its existing transparency commitments would be a good starting point. Um, but potentially you know, also being more open about that kind of thing. One of the tricky areas that has popped up in the last year or two is around, you know, what transparency can you have about conversations that are held on WhatsApp? Uh, and things like that. So I think you know we really need to get a policy there. If you've got government ministers talking about government policy, then I think those messages should be in the public domain. At the same time, I can see that that's you know it's no easy thing to to regulate that and get that out there. So I think that's something we need to do a bit more thinking about. Um, I think in terms of civil society and and media, keeping up the pressure, keeping asking questions. I think you know one of the things you know we talked about the fact that at the beginning of a pandemic then it is an emergency situation you want to give the government a little bit of leeway for dealing with you know a difficult situation but once you're 18 months in um it's not clear that you can really use the same excuses uh, for evading due process and that kind of thing um so yeah i think um essentially we need to make sure that this this institutional ecosystem is able to function, that there are solid inquiries, plenty of transparency, and that media and civil society can can keep asking questions about this. Okay, brilliant. And um, before we finish, was there any other final points you wanted to make or any um, closing remarks? Yeah, so... A lot of my work is is looking internationally and I'm looking at countries where um, state capture is happening. So um, this means that small groups, often groups that are belonging to a particular political party or sometimes business groups, are really taking over the state and encroaching on all of those checks and balances, sort of essentially trying to control more and more of those institutions and undermine the ones that are supposed to be holding the state to account. So, you know, I look at this in, in Hungary and South Africa, and um, you know, we've had examples of this kind of behaviour in, in Malaysia, Turkey. Um, and I'm a little bit worried, actually, that some of these behaviours you see in the UK. So you see, for example, with that prorogation of parliament, um, yeah, that was an encroachment on the power of parliament to hold the government to account. It was then declared unlawful by the Supreme Court, so the institutions fought back. But still, to see that kind of challenge in the UK, I think, is worrying. You've also had a lot of um, situations of the government um, being somewhat aggressive in its relationship towards the media. So there's this constant 
you know, threat about what's going to happen to the BBC and Channel 4. There's now this effort to install um, the former Daily Mail editor as the head of the um, Ofcom media regulator, you know, even though he's previously been rejected. So these are things, and we've also actually, sorry, just another really important one is this encroachment on the judiciary and the independence of the judiciary that we've seen with you know, some threats that there'll be more politicization of judicial appointments and some you know, government complaints about judicial decisions that have related to their own actions. It's really important that we defend those institutions. I think you know, sometimes we take them for granted. We do live in a country where there is rule of law, things work pretty well. But having looked at these other countries that I'm working on, it's amazing how quickly that slips. And you know, it starts with a couple of moves and then it, it really gathers pace because it becomes easier. The more that you've encroached on those norms, it gets normalized. And then actually, because you have already centralized power and undermined some of the checks and balances, it becomes a lot easier to centralize more and to capture the state. So, you know, my bigger concern is that we really need to protect this pretty good institutional ecosystem that we've got in the UK and not take it for granted. Okay, and I think that is a really good point to end on both normatively and um, intellectually. So Elizabeth, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And um, we will, maybe we could have you back on in the future when, uh, to discuss a public inquiry. <laughs> yeah, great conversation, Pete. Very nice to talk to you. Thank you.